the last time that we were together, the last time I was with you, uh, which was two weeks ago, I, um, I, I, I mentioned a man that some of you may have heard of before. Uh, his name was John Owen. Um, <clears throat> John Owen was the guy who I've told you, I mean, he was probably the greatest mind that England has ever produced. He was considered the, the theologian of the Puritans. Um, just to give you kind of a small example, um, in my world, um, you have a, a section, a thing called systematic theology. And um, in my library, it's full of systematic theologies. Well, well here's one. This is Louis Burkhoff's Systematic Theology, and it's a very excellent volume. This is, a, um, this is well worth having, well worth reading. Um, this is another um, Systematic Theology. Um, the, 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 the difference is uh, these are covering the same um, um, material, but this one comes in 16 volumes. Um, this man covers the material in one volume. This man covers the material in 16 volumes. And this is John Owen. This particular volume, volume 10, has become famous because it contains a treatise um, that is known as the death of death and the death of Christ, having to do with the extent of the atonement. It is utter genius. But, but just imagine covering the same amount of material here and then taking 16 of these to cover the, the same amount of material. Well, that's John Owen, um, as I said, considered the, the theologian of the Puritans. Um, he's the one that I quoted as we started last week, and, uh, or the, two weeks ago when I was here, um, saying that the most difficult thing for a pastor is to get people to believe what God says about them in regard to their sin. And then get people to believe what God says about them in regard to the salvation that they have in Christ Jesus. I just thought that was such a keen insight. But there was something that I meant to say two weeks ago that I, that I did not say. It was just another little tidbit about John Owen. Um, John Owen was sought after by universities all over Europe and was even um, invited to this country in her infancy, several times, never came. Um, but the thing that I, I wanted to tell you tonight is a little story about his, his family. Um, John Owen and his wife Mary had 11 children, 10 of whom died in infancy. The 11th, the one daughter that did survive to adulthood, died of tuberculosis. And yet, in his prolific writings, I mean, I mean, 16 of these volumes, imagine, and in other things that he wrote, not one time do you ever hear him complain, um, question. You never hear him um, uh, argue with the, uh, the providences of God in his life. Um, what you do find is that Everything that he confronted uh, seemed to drive him deeper and deeper into the things of the Lord Jesus. Um, here is something that he did say. He never complained, but he did say this. He said, what do we want? What do our souls desire? 
Is it not that we might have a more full, clear, stable comprehension of the wisdom, the love, the grace, the goodness, the holiness, the righteousness, and the power of God as declared and exalted in Christ unto our redemption and eternal salvation? <laughs> is that the way you would answer those, those questions? I mean, what is your soul desire? <laughs> I'm not sure you would have answered it like this. What, what we want is a fuller and more stable comprehension of the wisdom, the love, the grace, the goodness, the holiness, the righteousness, and the power of God as declared in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Now, here's my point, guys. Can you and I, um, he, was, he, he died in 1683. So what is that? Uh, let's say 450 years later. Can you and I have, the, have a similar kind of faith to that? Yes. But it starts, I would suggest, it starts um, with, a, with a very precise grasp of the gospel as it is set forth in this book that we're studying um, called Galatians. <laughs> um, that's where it's got to all begin, ladies and gentlemen. With a, um, you know, uh, in our day, Precision theologically, precision and even passion theologically, is very unwelcome. Um, <laughs> but when you, when you think of somebody writing 16 volumes to be precise about what we believe concerning the Christian faith, that's what produces... Oh, here's what I want. I want to know more about the grace, goodness, and the holiness, righteousness, wisdom, and power of God. That's what precision produces. A lack of the appreciation of the gospel produces the kind of flimsy Christianity that's so prevalent today. So, tonight we get to do something really exciting. We get to start in the text. <laughs> uh, I heard somebody, some of you were taking bets as to whether or not we'd actually get to the text tonight. Well, we do. We're not going to get real far into the text, but we're going we're gonna to get to the text. But, so turn with me to the book of Galatians, and let's start our precise um, understanding um, of this thing called the gospel. Now, guys, I, I hate to do this to you, but I do this every time. Um, when we start a new chapter, I read the whole chapter first. And I don't do it next every week. I mean, I only, but I do it on the first time when we get to the text. So I've got to read the whole chapter tonight. And then we'll come back and piece it together as we go. But let me, let me start by reading Galatians chapter 1. And you can follow this, this, um, this portion of God's word. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. And all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one. But there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone, 
is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. But I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. In what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Sicilia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. The only, they only were hearing it said, He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. That's chapter 1, ladies and gentlemen, and it is, um, it is rich. Let me go back and read you verse 1. Is called, because that's what we'll look at tonight, or at least a portion thereof. Uh, Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. That's what we'll uh, concentrate on tonight and probably next week. Um, guys, uh, somewhere in and around A.D. 50, um, the infant church, the church that was just beginning to, to form, um, was, was drifting towards her first... Uh, ecclesiastical and theological crisis. Um, the crisis was the um, the intricacy and the, the 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 difficulty of assimilating Gentiles into what had formerly been pretty much a Jewish church. How do we include Gentiles now into basically a church that is comprised of all Jews? <clears throat> Having to face that question, some of the specifics that immediately came up is, okay, then what is the role of circumcision, and what is the role of the Ten Commandments? Um, those are issues that are fully and, and, and formally faced in a, in a, um, a big uh, gathering, what there was, what's called the Jerusalem Council, uh, that's recorded for you and described for you in Acts chapter 15. Once the church realized that she was facing this crisis about now we've got Gentiles that are coming in, oh my goodness, what does that mean about circumcision and the Ten Commandments? They call a meeting. They call this big meeting and they all meet in Jerusalem. Again, Acts chapter 15, you can go read about the meeting. But at that meeting, the question before the house was, what are we going to require of Gentiles who are coming into the church? Will we require them to be circumcised? Paul steps forward and is the, the primary spokesman, and Paul single-handedly 
won the day. And of course, as you know, it was uh, Peter then tells the uh, letters to be written and, and sent to the churches. But Paul steps forward and makes this case um, about the gospel and its purity and its simplicity. And from that moment on, Paul is the object of attack. From the Jewish wing, um, I'll say of the church, but I'm not sure these were converted people, but um, Paul becomes the object of scorn and a target is on his back because Paul is the one that steps forward to the Jerusalem council. He issues, he explains the whole matter and the church accepts his position. From that day forward, the apostle Paul, um, there was an effort to discredit him. And so, with that in mind, you will notice how he starts his book. Paul, an apostle. By the way, that's as far as we're going to get tonight. <laughs> um, Paul wastes no time in defending himself and staking a claim to a status that was being questioned by his opponents. His apostleship is one of the three major themes of the book of Galatians. Um, Paul, uh, not only Paul the person, but what Paul was teaching was under attack. Consequently, the authority that Paul brought to the church was a very key issue, folks. Um, you see, one's authority um, was, a, was a huge deal in a fledgling church because the authority, the Bible, was not yet completed. So whereas you can sit there with a Bible and, and, and measure me by what you find in here... The church did not have that privilege because she did not have this book in its completed form. And so for Paul to arrive on the scene as a complete unknown and start trying to define a gospel, people are saying, well, wait a minute, who's he? So he immediately begins by saying, Paul, an apostle. I am an authorized representative with a full authority among you derived, that authority derived from Christ Jesus. Ladies and gentlemen, those first three words are huge. Paul, not a teacher, not an evangelist. Not some kind of roving uh, preacher. Paul. An apostle. Now, guys, um, what's an apostle? Paul's considered number 13. Uh, the 13th apostle. 
He says on, on one occasion in 1 Corinthians 15 that I'm the least of all apostles, but I'm still an apostle. I may be the least of all apostles, but I'm an apostle. Um, but how can Paul... All right, all right guys, this is going to challenge you a bit. How can Paul make that claim? Guys, go to Acts chapter 1 with me real quick. You remember, you remember um, there were 12 of those guys, and um, one of them hung himself. His name was Judas, as you know. So he hangs himself, and so they got a vacancy. And so they're going to fill that vacancy. And over in verse, this is Acts chapter 1, verses 21 and 22, um, the, the church gets together and says, okay, we got to pick somebody to take Judas's spot. Here's the qualifications in 20 and tw- 21 and 22. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. Guys, in those two verses, what you get are two qualifications. That is, um, we've got a lot of men to pick from, but two things have to be true about them. Number one, they needed to have been following along with Jesus from the very beginning. Number two, They must be a witness of the baptism and resurrection. Now, if they've got those two qualifications, then we can choose one. And, of course, they come up with two men's names, and then they throw lots, and they choose one of them. Those are the two qualifications that the church sets for somebody to be an apostle. And Paul meets neither of them. How can he then claim this thing called apostleship. Um, okay, guys, let's, um, let's figure this out. First of all, <clears throat> um, see if you can find Acts chapter 22. Paul is giving his testimony. Um, and um, he says this, um, Acts chapter 22, verse 12. Uh, I don't know, I'm going to read 12. Well, let me, yeah. Uh, verse 12, he mentions Ananias, the devout man, came by and he was speaking to him and came to me standing by me and said, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour, I received my sight. Here, here it is, verse 14, 15. And he said, The God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one and to hear a voice from his mouth. And you will be a witness for him to every one of what you have seen and heard. Now, guys, what is Paul referring to in that statement? Is he referring to the thing that just happened to him on Damascus? Could be. But most folks don't think that's what he's referring to. Now go back to Galatians 1. One of the things that Paul is stating in Galatians 1, beginning in verse 17, is, uh, once I got converted, he says in verse 17, Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again into Damascus. Then after three years, there is a three-year period in the history of the apostle Paul uh, that really goes unaccounted for. Where was he? Well, he was in Arabia. He was out in some wilderness in Arabia. 
And most people would suggest, and I would be one of them, that those three years are three years where he was, can I put it like this, personally trained by the Lord himself so that those qualifications that you read in Acts 1 would indeed be met. So, everything that the others got over a three-year period, Paul got over a three-year period. He got got his own private class. Um, Jesus takes him aside into a wilderness and teaches him personally, thus giving him the essential qualifications of being an apostle. So, with that suggestion in mind, Paul steps forward, steps forward and makes no bones about it. Um, he not only defends his own apostleship, but he attacks his opponents. Opponents who have been suggesting that Paul's authority had been given him from men. And that's the very thing he denies vehemently. Nobody gave me this but Jesus himself. I didn't get it through men. Um, But through Jesus Christ and God the Father. That's where my apostleship came from. Now, guys, you got to (laughs) understand. Um... This is a big deal. It's a big deal for this man to make such a claim because he's going to go on from here (laughs) he is going to go on from here to become the ultimate definer of the gospel for the church. Paul makes a statement in 1 Corinthians 12 that he considered prophets first, excuse me, apostles first, prophets second. He, he, he saw this office as being the primary spokesman, this primary speaking office of the Christian church, particularly in a period where there was no written document by which the things people said could be measured and evaluated. So Paul arrives on a scene where nobody knows him and he begins to teach things. And he teach not only does he begin to teach them, he begins to attack those who are teaching things that are not similar to what he's teaching. And we're going to see that several times in chapter 1. So as he opens up it's imperative That all of his readers understand. Paul. An apostle. That's not a throwaway word there, ladies and gentlemen. It's a very significant claim. He begins to defend himself and he makes his defense because he knows there is afoot another gospel. He calls it a different gospel that we'll get to later on in verses 6 and 7. And those who were bringing this different gospel were the same ones 
who were questioning his authority. They were questioning his authenticity. They were questioning his right to speak about things that are at the heartbeat of all of Christianity, ladies and gentlemen. I've said this before. I don't have to be right about everything. I don't have to be right about baptism, although I am. Um, <laughs> just a joke. I don't have to be right about even my, my beloved Reformed theology. But I have got to be right. I have got to be right, and so do you. Concerning this thing called the gospel... And that is what is at stake in the book of Galatians. So, I hope you understand what I'm saying. To defend the gospel, he must first defend his call. To defend what it is that he will ultimately teach, he has to exalt his position. Not... not not designed for personal gain or not for reasons of personal gain, but because people need to be assured that what they're being taught is legit. You know, guys, some have called Paul arrogant for making a statement like, Paul, an apostle. Well, ladies and gentlemen, you need to make sure you make the distinction between confidence and arrogance. Jimmy Young is arrogant. Paul is confident of a call that he got through Jesus Christ. And he must establish that so that he can have the authority to define the gospel. You know, guys, a lot of you um, didn't come from Presbyterian backgrounds. Uh, I am a Presbyterian. As you know, I'm an ordained Presbyterian. And um, Presbyterians have a bad name, and they deserve it. Um, um, Presbyterians are nice people. You just don't want to live next door to one. Um, you don't want your daughter marrying one of those things, you know. Um, um, Presbyterians and Methodists have led the move from uh, orthodoxy to the left. And I, I guess if anybody's been better than the Methodists or has outdone the Methodists, it's been the Presbyterians, my denomination. Well, not my denomination, but my denominational stripe. But one of the things, ladies and gentlemen, that Presbyterianism does very, very well is that they have a process a very rigorous one, at least in my denomination, a very rigorous one, lengthy one, one that takes a while before they ever ordain you. You know, guys, um, <laughs> I'm going to use this word, but it's not the right word. I have fought, but, you know, the elders are so wonderful here. It's not that I had to fight them, but I had to convince them. I had to convince them that Gracie Van cannot and must not ever be 
an ordaining agency. We're an independent church, and you know, we could get away with anything we wanted to get away with. So you can ordain business managers. You can ordain pianists. I've been in environments like that, ladies and gentlemen. And it becomes a good old boy. And, um, but what the Presbyterian church has done is set this process up by which those who say they want to stand in front of God's people and teach them from the scriptures that that man is examined. Not just by a committee, but he comes under care of a session, and then he comes under care of a presbytery, and then he spends this year of internship, and then he takes an exam, and a licensing exam, and then he takes an ordination exam. All designed, ladies and gentlemen, to protect you. To protect you for somebody grabbing his Bible and and very charismatically standing in front of you and say, listen up, yo. That's how you get a, a church full of Jimmy Swaggerts, ladies and gentlemen. Because there is no guardians. Well, there wasn't a Presbyterian church when Paul shows up on the scene. And so when he steps forward and opens his mouth, the first thing he wants you to know, Paul, an apostle. His opponents who are, and and you'll hear this word a thousand times before we get through with Galatians. But his opponents are called Judaizers. J-U-D-A-I-Z-E-R-S. I'm not even sure I'm pronouncing it rightly. Judaizers or Judaizers or something like that. But they were, uh, that's the title that they go under. They claimed to be from James, who was the half-brother of Jesus. um, And they insisted that circumcision was necessary for anyone to be saved. That's what the whole issue at the Acts 15 council was. But they also said, if you listen to that fellow Paul, he's going to lead you astray. That gospel that Paul fellow's preaching, that leads to loose living. <clears throat> All that business about grace by, by grace through faith alone, that's going to that's gonna wreck the church because it's going to allow the church to get really loose in their morality. And I can tell you this, says the Judaizer, You give them a little law, you establish that law business, and then we won't have any problem with immorality. So don't y'all be listening to Paul and that thing that he preaches, because it's just going to wreck the church. And now you know why Paul starts with these three words. Paul, an apostle. Paul is claiming to be sent with a divine authority. Ladies and gentlemen, this book is about two gospels. A true one and a false one. He calls it a different gospel, and I can't wait to get down there. But it's different. Because it's different from the one that he preached. So, 
which one's right? Is Rome right? Telling you to pray to Mary. I had a conversation in a locker room recently, and uh, and it really got heated. And uh, a man was, I hate to dress with another man in a locker room. There's nothing worse. But um, anyway, having said that, <laughs> um, uh, he was about to go out and run. And he voluntarily told me, he said, um, well, I've said all my my Hail Marys, because, you know, it's hot out there, and, you know, you might get sick. And so I, I said, I, I forget what he said, 25 Hail Marys. And I said, um, well, Bob, that's not his name. I said, Bob, I don't think those Hail Marys are going to help you a bit. And he said to me, you don't think it's right to pray to Mary? And I walked over and I said to him, I think Mary is just as much a sinner as I am, and she needs a Savior just as badly as I do. And he said, I don't like that. Who's right, ladies and gentlemen? Because I'm here to tell you, That's a different gospel. Or is the church of Christ right? You got to be, you got to believe in the Lord Jesus and be baptized by immersion to be saved. Is that the gospel? You better figure it out. Because the gospel has to do with how you can be reconciled to God. Who's right, ladies and gentlemen? The reason, this is a quote from Luther. Luther said, the reason he, that is Paul, but can I just insert, the reason that he, and I, (laughs) but the reason that he, Paul, agonizes over this is that he insists that to lose grip on the true gospel is to desert and lose Christ himself. So ladies and gentlemen, you get your hands wrapped around the wrong gospel. And according to Luther, you have deserted and lost Christ himself. Folks, I know that precision and passion is no longer welcome in this culture. However, in the interest of your eternity, somebody better be precise with you. Paul is motivated not by a thirst for some kind of personal power or a a lust to be right. He's motivated 
because of a love that he have he has for men's souls. And because he had that love, he starts off this way. Paul. An apostle. Our Father, I I do pray that you will remind us that what we're dealing with here is a message that did not come from men. It didn't come from the Presbyterian Church. It didn't come from the Baptist Church. It didn't come from Jimmy Young. It didn't come from Billy Graham. It came from God. And it's a gospel that is precious to us. And a gospel that we must learn and know in the hopes that when 11 of our children die, that we will say along with John Owen, the thing that I want most is to know more of the love and the power and the righteousness and the grace and the mercy of the God who has gone to extremes to save sinners such as we. Teach us this thing, Father, through stumbling, babbling, fallible lips. But those lips would not be Paul's. They would be mine. Guard your people from my excesses. But teach us from this book the beauties of what you have done and for us in Christ Jesus. We ask it, of course, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you and good night.